Luke chapter 8, verse 1 to 21. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, Joanna, the wife of household manager, Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. And when a great crowd had gathered and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now, the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The one along the path, the ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and the fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil... They are those who hear, who hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar and puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known, will not be known and come to light. Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. And then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd, and, and he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. This is the word of the Lord. Not a few times I've heard people say something along the lines of, you know, I'm not really growing in my faith. Or they might say it in this way, God has seemed really distant to me. Perhaps you said that or you thought that in this or that season of your own life. And sometimes people will blame it on the church. This church isn't feeding me. And that can sometimes be true if something other than the Word of God is being preached in the pulpit. 
But all too often, this is actually, I, in my experience, a scapegoat. While it's true that not every preacher is a gourmet chef, and not every sermon is a seven-course meal, yet even a diet of plain chicken and vegetables, the plain chicken and vegetables of the gospel, provides all the nutrients needed for a person to grow strong, that is, so long as they don't refuse to eat the food or refuse to do what it takes to turn those nutrients into spiritual muscle. The seed of the gospel is guaranteed to produce gospel fruit. I want you to understand this. The seed of the gospel is guaranteed to produce gospel fruit. The one who invented the seed, the one who wrote it, the one whose words spoke it into existence, right, and who lived it, stands behind that promise. And the truth of it has been seen throughout history. Where the seed has been scattered, lives are changed. The world changes. The problem is not the gospel or God's word or the Holy Spirit. The issue is what soil that seed finds. But it's easier to blame the sower. It's easier to blame the seed than it is to blame the soil of our own hearts. The issue, it's not God's word. It's not God's message. It's not God's messenger. It's us. That's the bad news. But if there's some bad news, then that means there's some good news, right? And I want you to understand what the good news is this morning. According to Jesus, faithful hearts are promised fruitful lives. Faithful hearts are promised fruitful lives. And we're going to look first at the fruit of our soil. And we see that there are some fruitless responses, and then there is a fruitful response. And then we're going to look at a few of the promises of our Savior that lie behind this parable. So the passage opens by telling us that Jesus is continuing to fulfill his purpose of proclaiming and bringing the gospel of God's kingdom everywhere, city after city after city. Jesus is scattering the seed of the gospel wherever he goes, regardless of what the soil is that he finds. I think that in itself could be a lesson to us. Jesus is sowing the seed everywhere, and it's taken root in the twelve. It's taken root in some women from a variety of social strata who are providing for him and for his disciples. And a great crowd gathers, and he tells this parable, right? And Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. Now, he's not talking about let him hear as in the, you know, the, the sense of uh, sound waves entering their ears, right? The sound waves are entering everyone's ears. He gets that. But he's calling them to really understand. He's calling them to take it to heart. Well, the disciples, they aren't sure what the parable means, and so they ask. Now, you might think, look, they're not understanding. They must be on 
the outside. However, Jesus says that he intends to give his disciples the secrets of the kingdom of God. And this tells us that faithful hearts and the right kind of understanding is not dependent on your IQ. I want to preface this sermon with that important, important point. You may think, well, I'm not smart enough, or I don't have the ability, you know, all of these human things that we think about, but that is never the issue. The issue issue is never your IQ, okay? This translation uh, of the word secrets, it can be misleading. The word in Greek is mysterion. It elsewhere is translated the mystery of the kingdom or the mystery of Christ. This this doesn't mean something that is currently hidden. We might hear that and we might think, oh, there's some sort of secret knowledge I need to get. I need to find this secret knowledge that no one else has, but that's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is that this mystery of the kingdom of God or the secrets of the kingdom of God is God's plan that was once hidden, it was once hinted at, but now it's being revealed. Now it is revealed, and we can see that if you want to write this down. We don't have the time to do it. I'll, I'll reference it a little bit later, but you can write down Ephesians 3, Colossians 1, and Romans 16. You can see that same phrase used there, and I encourage you to look that up later. But the, I'll give you the sense of it. All three of those passages identify this mystery as God's plan to make his salvation known, not to keep it hidden, but to make it known to all the nations and to bring about among the nations the obedience of faith. It's the gospel. It's what God is doing in saving people. And then he goes on to tell the meaning of this parable. The seed is God's word. It's the gospel of the kingdom. The soil is our hearts and the results are our responses The fruit or the non-fruit is our responses to God's Word. So I want to look at these three fruitless responses, and then I want to look at one fruitful response here in the text. Now, this isn't to say, I want to be clear here, this isn't to say that three out of four people who hear God's Word are going to respond fruitlessly. That is not, that's not Jesus's point in this parable, you know? People will read this and go, well, see, 25% of people who hear God's Word are going to uh, receive it, and 75% are going to reject. That's not, only in like our modern, like super scientific, exact, like only will that kind of interpretation come. No, the point is that there are three places, three specific places that Jesus wants to point out that render the seed fruitless. Three conditions of our heart that end up rendering the seed fruitless. And so let's consider each of these fruitless responses. The first fruitless response is this, that uncultivated hearts result in careless hearing. If your heart is uncultivated, then you will listen carelessly. Here we have seed that falls on the firmly packed soil of the paths, right? You've all seen firmly packed soil like that, and you throw the seed onto it, and there's no way for it to get down into the ground. It's trampled under feet. It's the birds come, and they, they pick it off, right? If you've ever seeded your lawn after slicing your lawn, and then seeded your lawn not having sliced your lawn, then you know exactly what this is like. It's like, oh, I just wasted $50 of seed because 
all of it just got eaten by birds and washed away when it rained, you know, none of it got into the soil, you know, that was a, maybe it would have been worth it to get the, you know, verticutter and do a little verticutting. Satan's deceptions, they easily snatch away the seed that is slow to make it down into our heart while Satan and his devices are at play. I want you to understand that while Satan and his devices are at play here, Satan is not the primary issue. It does not say that Satan swoops in and grabs the seed out of the air before it ever touches the soil. The problem is that the soil is uncultivated, that the seed can't get into the soil before the birds come. It ought to have been able to, but it isn't because of the condition of our hearts. Listen, if I know that thieves are going around at night stealing from unlocked cars, I think it was maybe a year or two ago, the thing came out from the police, hey, uh, some people were trying to find, they're going around and they're just checking doors at night to see if cars are unlocked and they're stealing from cars, if, but it's only if the cars are unlocked. Now, if I know that and I choose to leave my car unlocked anyways, and someone comes and steals from my car, now they're still thieving, right? They're still guilty of theft. But I'm also guilty of something as well, am I not? I'm irresponsible. I could have locked my cars, but I chose not to. I was careless. There's a carelessness that even Christians often have. Listen, when you open up your Bible to read it, when you come here on a Sunday morning, do you come carelessly? Do you come sleepily? Or do you come expecting to hear the very words of life? Listen, sleepy receivers will be sleepy responders. When you come to the word sleepily, You are leaving the front door of your heart unlocked, wide open for Satan to come in and steal and kill and destroy. You would never do that with your house. The second kind of soil, shallow hearts result in superficial believing. Next we see that there's seed that gets into the soil of the heart. It makes it through that upper crust, you know, and it gets into the soil of the heart, yet the soil, it says, is rocky. And this term, rocky, it's not like a field scattered with rocks here and there, you know. You've all been digging a hole and you hit a rock and you're like, oh, there's a rock right in this, happens to be in this particular spot. No, the idea of this term rocky is that there is a solid layer of rock just not very deep underneath the soil. We lived in a house one time where we had this patch of grass in the front yard. And it would die every summer. Every summer, this one patch would die. And I'm sitting here, I'm going, year one, I'm like, oh, that's a bummer. Year two, I'm like, okay, that's weird. Year three, I'm just, I'm baffled. And what was interesting is the, the patch of grass was two foot by six foot, exactly, every single time. Every single time, it died the same Dimensions, the same exact place. Come to find out, two inches under the soil was a slab of concrete. The, the, it was in the, the ditch, and the soil over time had eroded and, and had covered this slab of concrete. And so in the spring, when, when it was rainy, when there was plenty of water, when it, the temps weren't too hot, grass would spring up really quickly there. 
But as summer hit and the rain stopped and the heat came, I'd have a dead rectangle in my front yard, right smack in my front yard. And see, the soil receives the word with joy. It seems so pleasant to them in the spring of life when the weather is nice and the rain is consistent. But when the times of testing come, it it withers because it has no roots. It has very little roots. When life's droughts come, our joy withers because it was in the circumstances around Christ and not in Christ himself. It was in the circumstances around the gospel and not the gospel itself. It's in what God's word could give us and not in God's word itself. Shallow faith thinks things like, well, Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus is my boyfriend, you know, kind of a thing. But when dating doesn't seem fun anymore, nor makes us feel happy anymore, we think, well, the issue must be with him. That we must be incompatible. But Jesus never wanted a girlfriend. Jesus came to get a wife. He's willing to take us as we are right now with our free love past, loving all the things of the world, and commit himself to us. But he's not willing that we keep running around. Rooted plants don't get up and look for different soils. We're afraid, listen, we're afraid that if we allow God's word to penetrate our lives, we're afraid that he's going to come with his skid loader and rip up that chunk of concrete. And we can only think about the mess that's going to create. That is going to tear up my front yard. Can I just keep my yard like it is? Hey, right now it's May. The rains are good. The temps are nice. The grass looks super green. Let's not tear it up. But Jesus knows that by July, it's going to be scorched earth. If you would allow Jesus to do the work today that he wants to do, and if you would receive the seed of the word into your heart in two months, good grass would already be taking root. And it's painful. It's painful for the gospel to break through the stony parts of our hearts and our lives. I get it, but Jesus knows the joy of the garden that his word grows on the other side. And this is not, this is why we we talk about the fact that that theology matters, right? But But it has to be an applied theology. It can't merely be just knowing God or knowing his word for the sake of knowing God or knowing his word. but so that we believe more deeply, so that we apply it more broadly, so the roots go deeper and wider into our hearts and our lives. We need to experience and apply all those truths in more areas, not merely in superficial or surface ways. So when the drought comes to one spot, the extensive roots of our faith are supplied from other areas. And when the winds of life come blowing, and they do, you know that, we've all experienced it, that those deep roots of the tree keep it from from toppling over. 
So we need more than a superficial believing. We need more than shallow hearts. The third issue that we run into, the soil of our hearts, is this. Distracted hearts result in disobedient living. Like I said, we, it has to be an applied theology. The final fruitless soil is where the seed takes root, but as the plant starts to grow, it gets choked out by the thorns that are all around it, and it, it's never able to produce any fruit. And Jesus says, it's like those who, as they go on their way, that is, as they are living life, doing their thing, everyday life, all the cares of the world come in. The cares and the riches and the pleasures of life. They choke out the seed. See, there's a kind of obedience that obeys so long as obeying doesn't get in the way of what we actually want. And far too many Christians come, are willing to come to church every Sunday because it's, you know, they see the benefit of it. And they're willing to carry the banner of Christian because they see the benefit of it. But what happens when obedience runs into the things that we actually care about? The things that we actually want? As soon as Christ begins to compete for space in our hearts, then what we truly care about is revealed. And let me tell you this, Christ doesn't just compete for space in your heart. He will have it. He will have it one way or the other. Or he will let it be for something else. More often than not, when I've heard someone say that they aren't growing in their faith or they feel distant from God, the issue is they're spending time growing something else. They're just spending time growing something else. They trust in something else. They desire a different fruit. They want to grow both the gospel fruit and the worldly fruit at the same time. Can't I have both? And Jesus says, no. The second will choke out the first. There's only one good fruit. The actions of our life often reflect it. You lack faith in God that His Word will produce and that the fruit will be good, so you aren't diligently in God's Word and in prayer. You lack faith in God that His Word will produce, and that His fruit is good, and so you aren't prioritizing gathering with His people. You lack faith in God that His Word will produce, and that that fruit is good, and so you aren't giving sacrificially, or you aren't taking courage in sharing the gospel, or you aren't confessing your sins and repenting. The farmer who trusts that the seed can produce and that the fruit will be good goes to work on the ground. He does the work. He gets up every morning and he waters and he fertilizes and he tills the soil and he takes out the rocks and he weeds out the thorns because he knows the fruit is good and it will produce. God promised it. Do you want it? 
Do you want that fruit? Because a faithful heart, God promises, will produce it. The soil of our hearts and our lives will grow something. Do you go to the trouble of building a raised bed in your backyard and watering and fertilizing the soil and then say, Welp, whatever grows, grows, I suppose. No. Is our purpose to grow in Christ, to bear His fruit in our life? then we must plant the seed of the word of Christ and we must diligently weed out all other crops. There's a fruitful response, though. Verse 15. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. The soil... This soil has three characteristics that counter the issues of the other soils. There are three ways to be bad soil, and there's one good soil, but that one good soil counteracts all the bad soils. And and, and even more, it can produce 100-fold. It's so productive that seed can be scattered on all sorts of bad soil, and we still end up ahead. The good soil, though, it has three characteristics. It's an honest and good heart. It holds fast, and it bears fruit with patience. I want to give you, I want to give you just a brief definition of each, and then I want to give you a practical suggestion. I could have, I, honestly, I cut out a lot of things out of this because we would have been here for a long time. I could have given a lot, of, but I just went, what's, the, what's the, the best thing that I could think of in, in each of these places to to cultivate this kind of soil in our lives. And so it's as good as I could do, so I hope it's helpful. An honest and good heart. What's an honest and good heart? It's a heart that has integrity in its hearing. No lip service to the word being authority, but knowing that it's sufficient as well. It really listens because it believes that what is being shared in the Word is true and is effective. I was sitting one time kind of on the sideline of a conversation uh, at a a gathering of Amanda's family, right? And um, my teenage niece and nephew were talking with my uh, brother-in-law, their uncle. There was kind of this conversation that was happening. I was just kind of observing it. And he was sharing some wisdom from his life experience that was really good wisdom. But it wasn't the suggestion that they wanted to hear. And I was just observing, right, as you do when you're sitting on the sideline of a conversation, and I was watching their faces, and I could see in their eyes and in the glances that they would give to one another that they were kind of like, he doesn't know. Can you believe he's saying that? That's ridiculous. Oh, they were kind in their words to him, and they were totally polite. They were respectful in what they said, but their eyes and their hearts were telling a different story. An honest and a good heart in humility has 
its hardness broken up and tilled over. It expects that God's word has wisdom that it doesn't have. It expects that God's word knows what it doesn't know. It trusts that God's word is better. An honest and good heart knows that the word is more true than the heart itself is true. And it's ready to have the word show and expose the imperfections and weaknesses in it. So how do you receive the word with an honest and good heart? Well, here's one way. Decide to believe and do, decide to believe and do what it says before you hear it. When you walk in on a Sunday morning and you're getting prepared to hear a sermon, do you pray, Lord, today, as I hear your word, I will receive it and I will do it, whatever you say. When you wake up in the morning and you open up God's word, do you start with the prayer, Lord, whatever you have to say to me today, I will obey. You cannot sit on the throne and have veto power over God. He's not bringing suggestions. He's not bringing, you know, a counsel and you're the king. He's the king. He's telling you what to do. He's telling you what is best. You must expect that God will speak to you in His Word. And you'll be amazed at how often the Father responds to the honest request of His children. Listen, how many of you parents, when your kids come genuinely asking for your advice, genuinely asking, Mom, Dad, what do you think? How many of you go, I'm not going to tell you? You would never. If, and if you, flawed parents as you are, would never do that, how much more would our Heavenly Father not do that? Second thing, second characteristic, hold, it holds it fast. What does it mean to hold it fast? It's this idea of clinging. The word there, hold it fast, it's like clinging to the word, clinging to God's promises, clinging to the gospel. When the trials of life come, what do you cling to? You cannot cling to something else and cling to God's word at the same time. If your hands are grasping something else, they cannot grasp God's word. The last time a hard time hit you, where did you turn? Was it God's word? When friends came with comforting words of advice, which, which did you receive? That which aligned your heart to God's word or that which merely gave your feelings temporary alignment to what you wanted to feel in that moment? Which one was it? See, the first brings lasting peace. The second can't deliver on what it promises. God's word delivers. So how do we hold it fast? Well, meditate on God's word in your life. Meditate on the word. When you read the word or when you hear a sermon, do you take notes? Do you go back to those notes? Do you take time to consider 
Do you have conversation with other believers around it? Do you consider how, it might, how that passage might apply to your life? What you might be believing wrongly, what you might be doing wrongly? Do you allow the word to be a mirror to your life? You see, the best mirrors aren't the most ornate mirrors, but the ones that give the most accurate reflection, and none is better than God's word. Only God's word can do that for our hearts. Sometimes it takes time. You have to meditate on God's word. Consider your own life. We're impatient for new grass to spring up. You throw some seed out, you run that sprinkler, you know how much that water's costing you. And you're thinking, man, why didn't that grass come up yet? It's been a week. It's been two weeks. Where's that grass at? God, why isn't this happening now? But, it, but often it delays because it's growing its roots down deep first. It's got to grow roots first before it can spring up. But if you don't take time to meditate on God's Word and allow it to root deeply, why do you expect anything to spring up in your life? Too quickly we say, well, Jesus must not know what I really need, and we trample the grass before it has a chance to grow. The third characteristic is bear with patience. Bear with patience. What does it mean to bear with patience? The term for patience here is this quality needed to bear up under the pressures of living faithfully. Living faithfully comes with pressures, right? Being obedient comes with pressures because there's a whole lot around you that tells you to be disobedient, to do a different thing. But this puts its hope in God's promises to endure in the current circumstances, to stay faithful when there's temptations all around to be unfaithful. It's patience when you don't know why the bad thing is happening still, and patience when you don't know why the good thing isn't happening yet. The world wants to tell you that you're lacking this or that, and that your circumstances are an obstacle to those things, that God's Word even is an obstacle to those things, and it wants to distract you on something that will ultimately be empty. God's Word says, yeah, you are lacking something. And that, and that, that something that you're lacking, it, it won't disappoint. It won't turn out to be empty. And that your circumstances, they're not an obstacle, but it's actually an opportunity through which God wants to bring that thing, that something, if you would trust Him. And that something is the fruit that He will produce. It's hope in Christ. It's godliness. It's Christ-likeness. The problem isn't that enduring in Christ won't produce these things. He's promised it will. He's promised that the fire will refine you, right? The problem is that we don't believe that that's what we really need. The problem is we don't think that what we need most is to be more like Christ. The problem is we don't actually believe that hope in Christ is better than hope in the things of the world. I mean, listen, be honest about your heart for a second. Because the soil of your heart matters, Jesus says. So let's take stock 
Let's take stock honestly of what it's like. Do we believe that more of Christ is better than more of what the world is offering? Do we believe that being like Christ is better than being like the guy down the street and what he has and what he gets to do? Don't let earthly cares choke out this fruit. So how do we bear with patience? Here's my, my, one, my one thing on this. Be diligent to remove the thorns of sin and temptation. You can't take medicine every day with one hand and with the other hand take poison every day and expect to see much improvement, right? You can't get up every morning and read your Bible and say your prayers and then spend the rest of your day caring about everything else and expect that 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 15 minutes is going to produce fruit. Stay diligent to weed those idols that grow into thorns in your heart and keep God's Word from bearing fruit. Listen, the longer you allow those thorny bushes to grow, the harder they are at removing and and the more painful that they will be to remove. If you've ever removed thorny bushes from your yard, you know the longer they grow, the more that there are, the longer the thorns get, the more painful it is when you finally set to work. Get rid of them as soon as you see them. Do not let them take root. All of this is is built not on our own ability. I want you to understand, not on our own great ability, but on the promises of our Savior. And He gives us three promises. We've already been talking about the first promise. The first promise is this, fruitfulness. His seed will be fruitful. He promises it. The second promise is this. It's a promise of understanding. We see in verses 16 through 18, he shifts to another uh, short analogy, another parable, if you will. And, and <clears throat> this idea of lighting a lamp and putting it on a stand, it's, we also see that in Matthew, Matthew uh, uh, as well. And oftentimes we think about how it's used there and we might apply the way it's used there to here, but I think it's actually, Luke is using it in a different way. I think verse 18 gives us a key to understanding this, these three verses. You see, the command is not about being a good sower, but about being good soil. Hearing well and responding. Hearing well means you respond with obedience to the word. In this light, like that pun, okay. Verses 16 and 17 are not a command, but a promise. It's not a command, but it's a promise. They're a promise on which the command of verse 18 to hear well is founded. Verse 16 and 17 are telling us it's Christ who is revealing the mystery of the kingdom. It's Christ who has lit the lamp. And if you would light a lamp and not hide it under a basket, Christ is not going to do that either. His intention is to give you more and more understanding. His intention is to continue to produce more and more of this in your life. We can trust 
that for those who enter the kingdom by faith in Christ, we will see the light of the gospel. It will shine light in our life. The light will be manifest. The more that we obey in faith, the more that will produce this thing in our life. Not because we're great, but because the one who lit the lamp is able. Because he promises. Here's the critical point. Understanding comes by faith, the kind of faith that lives obediently by the Word. If you want to grow and bear fruit, it's not merely doing the things, reading the Bible, praying, giving, etc. It's not merely giving mental agreement to these things. It's what Romans 16 calls the obedience of faith. I don't do these first and foremost because I think that they will produce fruit on their own, but because Jesus said He'd use them to produce the fruit. Because Jesus promised us. It's not built on my ability, it's built on the promise of Christ. I pray because I believe Him. I submit to my husband or sacrificially love my wife because I trust Him. I lead my family in prayer and worship because of faith in Him. I share the gospel with my coworker, trusting God's Spirit will use it. It's on His promises that I do these things. Not on my promise. As we trust Him in these things, and as we act on that trust, He reveals more of who He is to us and what He's doing We know this is true in Scripture. It tells us, Romans 12 tells us, that we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Because of His great mercy, because of what we believe Christ has done, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices to Him. And then what does it say? Our minds are renewed and we're able to discern the will of God. That order is purposeful. Think about Abraham. God reveals a little bit to Abraham. Abraham has faith And that faith is shown in his actions, and God reveals a little bit more. And then he has faith, and that faith is shown in actions, and God reveals a little bit more of his promise. And then Abraham has faith, and it it just carries on like that. Listen, you want to know more of who Christ is? You want to understand the gospel more? You want to see the fruit of it in your life more? Trust Christ and do it. Have the kind of faith that leads to action. The, other, the last promise is this, the promise of communion. The passage ends with this scene that is, at first reading, it's a bit confusing. Jesus' family comes, can't get to, him, can't get, can't get to Jesus because of the crowds, and they say, oh, Jesus, your family's here, and Jesus says what? He says, my mother and my brothers are those who hear my word and do it. And that may sound for a second, like Jesus is telling us, you know, disregard our family, toss them, toss them aside, you know, that, that your true family is, is, is God's family. And, and while God's family is a kind of family to us, it is not Jesus' intention to uh, toss away the family unit. In fact, he upholds it. We can see that in places like Mark 7, 10 through 13, where Jesus speaks directly to this kind, that, that kind of uh, uh, misunderstanding. Paul reiterates the importance of family in in 1 Timothy uh, 5 on a number of occasions. So, 
One of the mistakes that we can make in interpreting a passage is to take a statement in a particular setting with a particular application and then try to universalize it beyond what it's intended to be used for. We got to take it in its context. So what's, what's the context of this statement that Jesus is saying? See, while Jesus is being rejected by many Jews who should have good soil, but don't, while Jesus is about, just about to turn his face to Jerusalem and head there and will be rejected by all the Jewish leaders who should have got it, but didn't, there are those amongst them who have good soil, who are receiving his gospel. And to these, he is revealing the mysteries of Christ. To these, he's giving salvation through faith, both to Jews and to Gentiles. And, and both are being brought together into the family of God. And so the weight of this for Luke's audience, original audience, for Theophilus and for the Gentile believers that are reading it is this. It's, if the soil of your heart is good, you don't have to worry that the blood of your heart, uh, what the blood of your heart is, that what your DNA is. You don't have to worry about the fact that you're not Abraham's physical descendant because you are Abraham's spiritual descendant and you are part of this family and, and Christ will keep you in his family. He will not put you on the outside. Those who think because they have the blood of Abraham riding through their veins, but don't have the faith, are not listening and doing it, they will be left on the outside of God's family. We don't have to fear that if we are faithful to God's word, that God may not in the end be faithful to us. He will. He will do it. There is laid up a crown of righteousness for all those who have loved Christ appearing and have faithfully endured in the gospel. We can respond in faith. We can have good soil because Christ has promised. He's promised us that we'll be fruitful He's promised us to, that, he'll, that He'll grow us in faith and understanding. He's promised that, that we will be part of His family, that we will have communion one with another and with Him. Martin Luther said, or at least this is attributed to him, that we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. We're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. That is that what we do does not cause us to be savable. But the fact that we are saved will change what we do. will change our lives. And so you can read that quote and you can hear it and you can see it as an obligation. I need to stay good with Jesus. I need to do these righteous works. But that's not how Martin Luther meant it. He meant that those who hear it and see it as a promise, they thank God that through faith in Christ and by the power of His Holy Spirit, He will transform the field of our life. Will we cultivate the soil of our hearts, though? 
This is the wonderful truth. Faithful hearts are promised fruitful lives.